beautiful people of the world. If you're listening to this, it's because you're listening to the podcast version of Geeking with Destination Venus. And if you are, thank you for not deleting us from your podcast feed, because we are aware it's been a while since you've heard from us. Uh, I think the last episode to hit your feed would have been around about 51, I think. And then earlier this week, we managed to get 60 out. So you've missed eight or so episodes. Technical issues, really, basically, were what was causing that. Uh, We had a massive problem uploading to SoundCloud. I still don't quite understand why, but we don't anymore. It's fixed. I don't know what we did. I don't know how we fixed it. But for now, we are back on track. So what are we going to do about it? Well, first of all, we're going to make sure that you get your episodes every Thursday from now on. That shouldn't be a problem now. SoundCloud assures us that there's no problem there, and and I can't see there's a problem at our end. So whatever it was, we're done. Um, What we're going to do, we're going to take the non-topical stuff from the episodes that you've missed, which is basically uh, me and Hat and Alice talking about Stranger Things, uh, and put those together in a special episode in the next couple of weeks and release it into the podcast feed for your enjoyment. Probably more than one episode, so we don't like, you know, fill your device up with too much stuff. Um, We're going to do it in a couple of weeks because as time of recording on the 4th of August 2022, we haven't actually recorded our thoughts about the second half of Stranger Things season four. So we're going to record that. And then when that's ready to come out as the regular show, we'll put the previous bit that you guys have missed out so you can hear it all at the same time and hopefully that will make sense. Okay, that's it. Thank you for your kind attention. We will now return you to our regularly scheduled programming. Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news and views. Okay, so I think the first thing we have to do is look back and acknowledge that it's not been a great week in terms of beloved people seeing the end of it. Uh, We've lost three, count them, three, just stalwarts in different ways of the geek community. We're going to start with Bernard Cribbins because his death was actually announced literally half an hour after I finished recording last week's show and I nearly re-edited the thing, but I thought, no, I'll leave it a week. So that, first of all, I can get my head around it. And second of all, so that I can take the appropriate time to properly sum up the career of this total stalwart of not just the geek community. He was so much more than that. Of of British stage and screen, big and small. I think... I became aware of him in the 70s when I was very, very young indeed. Uh, And he was the narrator of The Wombles. I also may have seen him in the 70s in the 1966 film Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD, which he was in playing the Doctor's companion Tom, Tom Campbell. Uh, Of course, this was not the real Doctor. This was the Peter Cushing Doctor. And I don't propose to get into that argument right now. Uh, But obviously he then came back to Doctor Who in 2007 to play Wilfred, Grandad Wilf, Donna's wonderful grandfather, who I think is one of the one of the best not quite a companion companions 
that the Doctor's had. He he played the character for three years, between 27 and 2010. So yeah, more than a decade since we had Wolf. I know, I can't believe it either. And he just embodied that character, the, the kindness and the concern and the strength of adversity the strength of his character, the sense of adventure, that the compassion within the character. I remember, um, I can't remember exactly which scene it is, and I'm not going to go and look it up, but he, his character is talking to somebody and they say, and he, he says that he used to be a soldier, and they say, oh, but you never killed anyone. And his response is, well, don't say that like it's shameful. You know, just a wonderful character. Uh, that I adored. Um, he was also Albert P- Perks in the 1970 film The Railway Children, uh, and again, iconic in that role. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've seen The Railway Children, but it's a lot. I, uh, I could give you a complete filmography, but would be here all day. I will put one in the in the show notes. Suffice to say, this man's career spanned seven decades, in which time he also found time to serve in the parachute regiment. Uh, I think he saw action in Korea. I, yeah, I don't know how you cram that much life into a life. Uh, he was the Wombles. Uh, he was Bilbo Baggins in the Jack and Nori um, version of the Lord of, of of the Hobbit. Not the Lord of the Rings. Didn't do that. Uh, which I have found out. Well, I didn't find it. Somebody showed me where it was on YouTube. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well. How long it'll stay up on YouTube, I have no idea, because it is obviously copyright material. But if you get a chance, as far as I'm concerned, that's the definitive version of of The Hobbit. Uh, Peter Jackson, sorry, um, but you didn't need six hours worth of movie to tell that story. You needed a few 15-minute episodes of Jack and Ori. That's what you needed. If you're young and you don't know what Jack and Ori was, follow the link in the show notes. I'm not sure how much you'll enjoy it. Possibly you needed to be around in the 70s and 80s to appreciate it. But it was glorious, trust me. So that's Bernard Cribbins. Um, He was very old. He was 93. I suppose we cannot be that surprised when people of that age leave us. But we can still be sad because we are less without him. As it happens, he has returned to Doctor Who. His scenes have been filmed already for the 60th anniversary thingamajig uh, that they're doing. So that will presumably be his last on-screen appearance when that airs. And uh, I fully predict that I will have something in my eye when that happens. So that's that's Bernard Cribbins. Actor, writer, comedy song singer, an all-round really lovely man. 1928 to 2022. And sadly, Cribbins is not the only person that we've lost since the last recording. I will only briefly mention Mary Alice here, uh, who has passed away at the age of 86 in New York. Um, She had a long career in American television. Uh, I think I probably first saw her on the spin-off of The Cosby Show, uh, A Different World, which I watched avidly because Lisa Bonet was in it. Um, But obviously we don't talk of Cosby Show spin-offs or indeed The Cosby Show anymore. Uh, But her relevance here to geekydom is that she stepped in to play the Oracle in the third Matrix movie, Matrix Revolutions. Um, She was probably the best thing in Matrix Revolutions, I think. Um, Obviously, she had to. they, they, They brought her in because Gloria Foster, who had originally played the Oracle, had also passed away at that point. 
Uh, and so the Wachowskis brought Alice in to fill and complete the character's storyline for the movie. Uh, she's also uh, reprised the role in the 2003 video game uh, Enter the Matrix as well. Um, we don't have any more details, uh, but she was a wonderful, wonderful actor. And, uh, you know, she will be missed. As will, and I am unbelievably sad about this one, the wonderful Nichelle Nichols. You will know her best as Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek series. She was one of the first black women to be on American TV show in a leading role in a prime time spot. Her kiss with Captain Kirk was the first interracial kiss on national American television. To the point that some networks in the South refused to show the episode. Fearing that response, the studio had actually asked that they film an alternative scene for some broadcasters where Kirk and Uhura did not kiss. Uh, the the storyline, this is original series Star Trek, so, you know, the storyline is not particularly subtle here. Uh, the um, the storyline was that Uhura and Kirk were in a sort of mind control situation and they were being forced to do this. I forget why. It's been a long time since I've seen the episode. And Nichelle Nichols tells the story that because they knew that the studios were going to try and do that so that they could edit the kiss out if they wanted to. They made all the non-kissing takes utterly unusable on purpose, you know, with just ridiculous over-the-top acting and stuff. I love that story. I don't know whether the impetus for that came from her or from Shatner. If it came from Shatner, it makes me respect him a lot more than I otherwise would. I suspect, although Shatner clearly went along with it, I suspect it was actually Nichols' idea. Michelle Nichols was also an activist and a campaigner, and she actually almost gave up Star Trek because she felt that there was important work to do for civil rights while she was, you know, tottering around in a red mini dress and um, pretending to fire ray guns at things. And it was actually Dr. Martin Luther King who persuaded her to stay as Lieutenant Uhura, pointing out that she was the, rep the representation. She was representing black women as strong and powerful and competent at a time when black women were, in fact, doing the calculations to send people to the moon, it should be pointed out, the only representation that people were seeing was Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. And Nichols understood and remained on Star Trek. And now, obviously, just as Bernard Cribbins was so much more than just Wilf and the sidekick from the Doctor Who movie in the 60s. And just as Mary Alice was so much more than the Oracle in the Matrix Revolutions, obviously Nichelle Nichols was so much more than just Uhura. But that's the role that makes her relevant to geekdom. And so that's what I'll focus on. She's a loss. She will be missed. But as with the other two people we are commemorating this evening, 
she lived a long and good life. She achieved a huge amount. And we should celebrate, as well as mourn, that these people have existed. So, continue to go boldly, Ms. Nichols. Say hello to Spock and Bones and Scotty for us. Okay, so that's that. Let's move on to something just a little bit more positive. You may notice that I am not talking about Stranger Things because we haven't recorded that yet. And um, yeah, stuff happened that meant we didn't get things recorded when we would have liked. But I will be talking to Alison Hatt about Stranger Things Season 4 Part 2 at some point before I speak to you again. Probably, I hope, because it's about time we have some other voices than mine on here. But I am going to talk about something that's not on Disney+. Plus. Oh yes, because we really do need to talk about Paper Girls. If you have not seen it, then you should. It really is that simple. I'm going to bet that most of you, not all of you will, but most of you have probably got an Amazon Prime subscription. It's very difficult to shop on Amazon and not get one, at least accidentally. And once you're in there, it's very hard to get out. So since you've probably got an Amazon Prime subscription, I suggest you use it wisely. And the wisest way you can use your Amazon Prime subscription is not to buy books. Don't be ridiculous. There are bookshops for that. It's not to buy comics. Don't be ridiculous. There are comic shops for that. It's not even to buy stuff because there are actual brick and mortar shops for that kind of thing too, where you can go. And I, I know this is a, a weird and honestly quite groundbreaking concept, but you can go to actual physical places and look at the things you might want to buy before you buy them. I know. So don't use Amazon for any of that nonsense. Support local businesses. But if you happen to have ended up with an Amazon Prime su subscription anyway, you'll want to be watching Paper Girls. It's not the only thing that's worth watching on Amazon Prime, but it is, it is the thing on Amazon Prime that is most worth watching. If you are unfamiliar with the story, it began life as a comic, and yes, you can buy it from Destination Venus. The comic was written by Brian K. Vaughan of Saga fame. That's, if you're unfamiliar with Saga, just the best comic there's ever been, basically. So, you know, he's a decent writer, is our Brian. And it focuses on four 12-year-old girls. It starts out with young Erin, who is setting out on her first ever paper round. Now, this is apparently a very different prospect than setting out on a UK-style paper round. American paper rounds seem a little bit more full-on. For a start, Erin is leaving the house at 4.30 in the morning. Now, I had a paper round as a kid, and I don't remember ever getting up that early, certainly not regularly. But she goes out on her round. She's a little bit nervous. Mum, clearly a little bit overprotective. And she's riding her bike and throwing papers onto the front lawns of the people she's supposed to throw the papers on when she throws one onto the wrong lawn. So she goes back to get it and the homeowner comes out and threatens her because he says she's stealing his paper. That is when KJ turns up. KJ is the paper girl who's supposed to deliver to that house and she sort of deals with the situation and the two girls go off and continue their route. Along the way, they run into Tiffany and to Mac two other paper girls, and for reasons, they decide to do their rounds kind of together that morning. 
it's it's weird. It's the day after Halloween. There's a lot of people still out. You know, quite a lot of drunks, and you know they they sort of decide, kind of reluctantly, that they're going to band together for mutual protection. Then, weird things start happening. I'm not going to tell you what because I don't want to spoil your enjoyment of the show. Suffice to say, they are not good, and the girls end up somewhere else, somewhere, in some ways at least, very far from home. This is kind of the story of how they get back, but it's much more than that. And it's a brilliant story of friendship, of female friendship in particular, which I don't think we see enough of on TV. And it's about family and it's about loyalty and all of that good stuff. It really is extremely good. Visually, it looks amazing. I don't know who did the VFX. I could look it up, but I'm not going to because um, I'm lazy. Um, but it's it, it just looks cinematography is great. It just looks beautiful. It's beautifully lit uh, and wonderful performances from the four leads. Uh, Sophia Rosinski as Mac Coyle, who is kind of the uh, the bad girl, the rebel, the tomboy. Um, Riley Lai Nilette as Erin Tieng. Uh, she's kind of the, the heart of the group and the, I was going to say mothering one, which is not quite what I mean, but that's kind of the function that she serves here. Uh, then there's Cameron Jones, uh, as Tiffany Quilkin, uh, he, she is the 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 doer, the the girl who gets things done, the the the, the one who goes out on a limb and makes decisions quickly, whether they're good or not. And then uh, Fina Stratza as KJ uh, Brandman, uh, she's um, not far away from her bat mitzvah. Uh, she's kind of resisting the whole Jewish princess thing. Uh, and she's the rich kid in the group. Um, Mac certainly resents her. Mac comes from uh, quite an impoverished background, which is why she's as tough as she is. In fact, if you've ever seen the film Candle Shoe, uh, which is a very early uh, movie starring a very young Jodie Foster, made by Disney, uh, it starred David Niven as well, late sort of 70s, it's very good. Uh, but she, uh, Matt Coyle, Sophia Rosinski is Matt Coyle, reminds me of Jodie Foster in Candleshoe. It's that kind of tough, streetwise girl kind of character, which, again, I don't think we see often enough. I'm halfway through season one right now, and I've got to tell you, it is brilliant. Absolutely stunning piece of work. So if you have Amazon Prime, and as I said, you almost certainly do, Treat yourself. You can thank me later. And speaking of TV, I am not going to make a big thing of it this week because I made a big thing of it last week. But if you are listening to this on the day that it drops, which is Thursday, the 4th of August, 2022, tomorrow, Sandman drops. That's Sandman available tomorrow on Netflix. Come on. That's two TV shows I've talked about that aren't on Disney+. Plus. We are on something of a roll this week. There's bound to be a lot of comment about it next week. I am nervously optimistic. As I said, last week, Sandman means a great deal to me. But it really does look as though they've nailed it. But of course, it is impossible for everything to go perfectly right all of the time. So with that in mind, I think I'm going to, to 
segue from the sublime, or at least the potential sublime, of Sandman into the ridiculousness of Batgirl the movie. Now, if you are a regular listener, you will know how I feel about Batgirl. Batgirl is one of my very, very favourite characters. All of them. All of them. There's more than one Batgirl. The original and best is Barbara Gordon. Now, her origin as a character is that she was going to a police costume party. I think it was probably a Christmas party. It's a long time since I've read that story. Dressed as Batgirl. Because, you know, she's Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Batman is a big thing in Gotham City. And she was doing like a crossplay, is what we call it now. It's like, yes, I'm going to be a female version of Batman. I'll be Batgirl as a costume. That's all. It was just supposed to be a costume at a party. But on the way to the party in costume, she came across a mugging, which she intervened in because she's a good citizen and, you know, police commissioner's daughter. And she got... She got a taste for it, but also, clearly, the people she helped were like, oh, you must be working with Batman now. And just assumed that she was a costumed crime fighter. And she leaned in. So she didn't tell her dad that it was her. She kept her secret identity. And Batgirl was born. And what I love about that is, unlike most of the rest of the Bat family, the Batgirls, do not ask permission. She didn't go to Batman and say, hello, I'd like to join, please. She just put on a costume and did it. And Barbara was the only Batgirl for quite a long time. And then at the end of the 80s, there was a Batgirl annual, which I have, called The Last Batgirl Story. And in that story, Barbara decided, for reasons I didn't understand at the time and still don't, really, Barbara decided she was hanging up the cape. She foiled her last criminal, uh, an assassin called the Cormorant, and she looked at the other people who were fighting crime, the people with powers, the boys who were working with the Bat at that time, Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, and she thought, yeah, they don't need me. I've got other things to do, other things to contribute. So she retired as a superhero, and threw herself into her passion as a librarian. And then, in what I am going to come out here and say, is one of the worst pieces of writing ever to be associated with, with the Batverse. Alan Moore, in, without question, the worst thing that he ever wrote, and don't misunderstand me here, Alan Moore is a comics writing genius. But this particular story is bad on many levels. I'm talking, of course, about The Killing Joke. Now, The Killing Joke came out at the end of the 80s, and at the time, it was hailed as a work of genius. But I think that had more to do with beauty of the art and the fact that Alan Moore was coming off the success of Watchmen. You know, he was being hailed as, an, as the genius that he rightfully is recognised to be. But Killing Joke itself, for me... It's a terrible, terrible story on many levels. One of its sins is the way it treats Barbara Gordon. What happens is that the plot of the, st the, the, the plot of the story, if you don't know it, and I have no compunction about spoiling this, by the way, I'm not even blowing the spoiler horn for this. It's an, it's an old story and it doesn't deserve such respect. 
The Joker decides that he wants to prove to Batman that the only difference between Batman, a force of order, and the Joker, a force of chaos, the only difference between them is one bad day. Joker decides if he can give Batman a really bad day, Batman will crack and become just like Joker. So the way he delivers this bad day is he turns up at the house of Batman's only known friend, Jim Gordon, Commissioner of Police. The door is answered by Barbara Gordon, who the Joker shoots through the spine. He then kidnaps Commissioner Gordon uh, and does some tortury, humiliation-y things to him as Batman goes across the city trying to find him and rescue him. And it's not a great story. It's really not. It's absolutely not a great story. Now, as a result of this, Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, the retired Batgirl, canonically became paralysed from the waist down and a user of a wheelchair. That's how she got about. Now, I don't object to that. And in fact, what happened next, I really liked. But the way that was done was crass. And it's not what we would now call a fridging. First of all, the character wasn't killed. And also, it wasn't the trope of taking a female character and putting and killing her or injuring her so that the male protagonist had a reason to do what he does. If anything, the person who's being fridged in this scenario is Jim. But it's, it was just crassly, crassly done. I, I, it, the whole thing, the, the lack of care that was taken with actually all of the characters in that story, I, I just can't get my head around. This isn't a misogyny thing. Uh, it's, it's a bad writing thing. And I, far, you know, it's a big thing for me to sit here and accuse Alan Moore of bad writing. But there you go, I've done it. It's the only thing he's written I don't like. So, there's that. Babs went on to use her information retrieval skills and archiving skills to become Oracle. Uh, and from her base, she became the go-to information centre for all of the heroes in the DC universe. If you needed to know something, you went to the Oracle. And Barbara gave you the answer because she knew. And for a while, that was it for Batgirl. And the Batverse concentrated on the Robins, the many, many Robins. And yeah, that's fine. I love the Robins too. Don't, again, don't get me wrong about that. But stuff happened in the books. And in the mid 90s, there was a massive storyline. It ran for over a year, I think, in which Gotham City was literally destroyed. And Bruce Wayne left the city to lobby the government to try and get some help for Gotham, which had effectively been written off. Everyone had been told to like evacuate, get out of there. We're just we're writing it off. It's too much like hard work. But of course, it's Gotham, so a lot of people stayed, and what was left of Gotham became ruled by gangs, effectively. And the people of the GCPD who'd stayed became just the good gang, but they were still basically a gang. They had no real authority. Against all of that chaos, a young girl called Cassandra Kane who had a particular set of skills. I'm not going to go into how Cassie got her skills. She's not superpowered, but she is the only person who can beat Batman in a fair fight. So there's that. 
she looked at what was happening and she saw that there was no bat in Gotham and she decided that, that Gotham needed a bat then more than ever. So she made herself a suit and went off and did the whole Batgirl thing. Barbara Gordon eventually took her under her wing and helped her. And Cassie was Batgirl for a while. And I love Cassie Kane as Batgirl. Uh, her story is complicated. Uh, she was mute for the first several years of her existence as a character. Her language was the language of movement. And she'd been raised from birth to use that language for violence. And she was very good. Very good at it. She still is. She's, as I say, an exceptional fighter. She's the only person in canon who can beat Batman in a fair fight. And then more stuff happened. And Cassie stopped being Batgirl. She took the name Orphan for her superhero activities. And a girl called Stephanie Brown, who had been a character called the Spoiler, uh, who got into cry into fighting crime to stop her dad, who was a low rent villain, and became Tim Drake's girlfriend. And briefly, when Tim wasn't doing the job, she did a stint as Robin. But eventually. She began to work with Barbara and became an officially sanctioned Batgirl. And that went on for a bit. And then Babs got her legs back. Uh, a whole techie thing. There's a chip in her spine and it does magic stuff that couldn't really work. But hey, doesn't matter. It's fiction. And we got Babs back as Batgirl. And I was really happy. I loved Babs as Oracle. But really, Babs deserves to be Batgirl. And then more stuff happened. And now... All three of the women who have borne the, the codename Batgirl are Batgirl again. Babs is kind of the leader of the trio, and she's stepped back a little bit. There's a thing wrong with her chip, and it might go wrong, and it would be terrible if it happened in a fight. So she's not Batgirl always. She's gone back to being a part-time Oracle, part-time Batgirl. Cassie and Steph, also Batgirl. They work together. It's great. It's a lovely dynamic. It, it feels like family. They bicker like sisters, and it's great. Yeah. I love Batgirl. And I was really looking forward to the Batgirl movie. I was nervous about it. I'm always nervous. Uh, in the same way that I was nervous about Sandman. I was particularly nervous because this is a Warner Brothers production in my life. Do they have a track record? But I was cautiously optimistic. It had a great cast. An absolutely stellar cast. Leslie Grace, J.K. Simmons, Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser... I mean, come on, these are big, big... OK, Leslie Grace isn't that big a name, but that's the point. She's a rising star, you know, and this could have been a real thing. And it's not happening. Now, that would be bad enough if they'd got everything lined up and then decided, now, nah, do you know what? We're not going to pull the trigger on that. We don't think it's going to work. Let's just step back, rethink, regroup. We need to make some changes. You know, the DC Extended Universe is clearly not going as planned so yeah let's just push the pause button and just chillax for a little bit that would have been a disappointment but i would have understood it but that would have needed to have happened two years ago so that's not what happened oh no what happens is they spent between 75 and 90 million dollars reports differ on actually making the film it's done the film is finished filming wrapped ages ago so, you know, they might not have done the final edit yet, but the film's essentially done. It exists. So they've taken that film and they've put it in a drawer and they've locked the drawer and then they've taken the drawer 
out of the office and they've buried it under 25,000 tons of concrete. They are saying that the Batgirl movie will never see the light of day. That 75 to 90 million dollars worth of investment written off. And the question then is why? Why would you do that? Why would you spend that amount of money? Why would you take a couple of years out of the professional lives of, I don't know how many people it takes to make a major motion picture, I'm guessing it's hundreds. Why would you waste their time to do all of that? And then just scrap it. It genuinely doesn't make any sense. Now, there's been various bits of reporting on this. Uh, the New York Post says that the reason this has been done is test screenings for Batgirl have produced very negative reviews from audiences and that, you know, it's been canned because it's bad. Now, I simply point out that this is from the New York Post, which is, how can I put this politely, not a particularly reputable source. Warner Brothers themselves have said, no, 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 it's not an issue of quality. The film's fine. It's just we're rethinking our strategy and we're going to go for bigger, more blockbustery things that are designed to go straight into cinemas. Batgirl, I think, was going to have a cinema cinematic release, but it was mainly intended for HBO Max. And HBO Max, I don't think, is doing all that well. I've got no actual evidence of that. But the whispering that I'm hearing is that HBO Max is not the streaming success that Warner Brothers hoped it would be. So maybe it's that. But even so, you've made the film. You've spent the money. Even if you don't make it back by releasing the film, you'll make some of it back. That doesn't make sense. So I don't believe what Warners are telling me. There's got to be more to it than just, oh, we're rethinking our strategy. Nah, no, 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 no. You've spent the money. You would want to get your money back. So that doesn't make sense. But I also don't buy the New York Post's, oh, it's a terrible movie. That's why they're not releasing it. And there are several reasons I don't believe that. First of all, there are people who have seen bits of it. There are people who've been on set who have no axe to grind. They're, they're relatively neutral and they love the character. Uh, Gail Simone, uh, the great, great Batgirl writer, was on set. You know, she she was invited on set for a, a, a couple of times. She's seen filming. She was really excited for this. Now, she wasn't saying this looks like a bit of a travesty. She was saying, this looks great. This looks amazing. So I don't think I quite buy the it's just terribly, terribly just too bad. Also, I'm looking at every other DC film that Warner have put out. I mean, let's be honest. The level of quality there is not particularly high. You've got Wonder Woman, the first one, which was, you know, great. I really enjoyed it. You've got Joker, which we're going to talk about in a bit and which I recognise as a brilliantly made film that I will never watch again. And then what have you got? Aquaman was kind of fun. Shazam was great. You know, Shazam was kind of fun. But I know the Snyderverse has its fans, but I am not one of them. And, you know, Suicide Squad, folks, uh, even the Suicide Squad was not that good. Birds of Prey, bit of a disappointment. So the idea that Warner are going to not release a movie just because it's bad is ludicrous because they've released so many bad movies. 
Don't even get me started on Man of Steel. I know it has its fans, but they're wrong. So, yeah, I'm I'm really, really baffled and disappointed by this decision. I really can only think of it as a colossal own goal. Whichever way you slice it, whatever their reasoning is, it's just a massive and completely avoidable own goal. And it's not as if they don't have problems of their own already. The Flash movie starring Ezra Miller is still in massive. And that is a real problem because this could have been the start of something good. One of the problems I think that Warner have had and one of the lessons they failed to learn from Marvel is that you're aiming your superhero movie at two distinct audiences. There are the people who know the characters from the comics and who know the stories from the comics and who love the characters and the stories from the comics. And you've got the general movie audience who couldn't give a monkeys about the comics. They don't know the stories. They don't know the characters. They just want a spectacle on a Friday or a Saturday night. And that's all they want. Both markets are important. Both markets are valid. There is no gatekeeperiness here. People who just want a spectacle on a Saturday night and who don't read the comics and don't care, they can still be fans of those characters. There are, Adve- there are Avengers fans out there, Captain America fans, Spider-Man fans, who've never picked up a comic and never will. That makes me sad, but that's their choice. And they're still fans. What Marvel realised very early on is, OK, well, that means then if we take storylines, beloved storylines from the comics, that makes the fans happy. And the reason those storylines are beloved is because they're pretty good. They're pretty good stories, which means the general audience who don't know these stories from the comics will enjoy them. And that's why we get the Infinity Gauntlet. That's why we get Captain America Civil War. They they didn't just rehash those storylines. They took elements from them. They took ideas from them and represented them in a new way, which kept existing fans happy, but also still hooked and invested because they weren't just just adaptations of existing things. They were reimaginings. So there was new stuff even for the existing fans. And, you know, you see the success that the Marvel Universe has had on screen and continues to have. DC, through Warner, has always lacked that confidence and that commitment. So you get, you know, things that are reimagined, re-engineered, yes, but with no particular reference to the things that the fans really love. And what you end up with is a mishmash of stuff that looks like it was designed by committee. And, you know, there are bits of Dawn of Justice that are really great. But they don't hang together and you don't get it. For me, you don't get a coherent story. There are bits of Man of Steel. There aren't many of them, but there are some bits of Man of Steel that I really enjoyed. But for me, the whole thing is a mess and a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of Superman. They try to make him dark and gritty and Superman isn't dark and gritty. Superman is a sun god. He's a beacon of hope. He's the embodiment of everything that is good about what America can be. That's his job. And if you try and make him grim and gritty, you end up with a flying Batman. And that does not work. If you want to do grim and gritty, that's what Batman's for. So, you know, I've had that rant before. But 
with the Flash movie, they were finally taking a classic, beloved Flash storyline straight out of the comics and getting the concept into the movie. They were going to do Flashpoint, which is all about alternate universes and time travel, and it's confusing and, and difficult. I'm not explaining it here. But that's what they were doing. That's why they were bringing Michael Keaton back as Batman, because he's the Batman from a particular universe. And they could still have had Mike, uh, Ben Affleck as Batman. I don't think he was going to be in it because I don't think he wanted to be. But, you know, and, and there's all of that stuff. And it could have been a way of unifying everything. The problem they have with that, if they've done it too late, it would now look as though they were copying the multiverse from Marvel, which they're not. Both companies have used multiverses for ages. I'm not sure who came up with it. I suspect it was neither of them. But also, they now have a massive problem with the star of that movie, Ezra Miller. Now, I'm not going to go into Ezra Miller's particular legal issues and stuff here. They're complicated. Uh, Miller is a complicated person. They have done some very unsavoury things. I don't want to get into any of that. Largely because I don't know what's true and what's not true. A lot of allegations have been made. Miller clearly has done some very dodgy things in terms of violent disorderly conduct in public and doesn't appear to have learned from their experience here. I, at this point, am not terribly sure that Warner want to be associating themselves with somebody who is perceived in the way that Miller is perceived at the moment. Now, again, I'm keeping this as neutral as I can because I don't want to judge anybody. But there are some very serious allegations made against Miller. And if any of them are true, I don't see how they can release the Flash movie. And if they can't release the Flash movie, then that's two movies they've paid to make that they're not going to get any money back from. At what point does the whole thing just become completely unviable? I don't know. I mean, Warner clearly have a lot of money, but their bank account is not infinite. And you can't just chuck millions of dollars away. At some point, the people who actually have to sign the checks are going to look at the DC characters and the DC movies and say, we can't afford this. It doesn't make us any money. We get no critical credit for it because everybody hates the movies. When we do have fans, they actually become a problem. I'm looking at you, Snyder Broys. And wh why would a company want to have to deal with that? The whole point of Warner owning DC is that DC is supposed to provide an endless stream of proven intellectual property that Warner can throw into movies and turn into cash. That's why Disney owns Marvel. That's why most film companies own companies that do books or comics or cartoons or whatever. OK, you, you want to make a movie with characters and storylines that, you know, people like because making that kind of movie, making the blockbuster stuff is 
ridiculously expensive. You need to be sure you get a return on your investment, and Warner are not. And that's a problem to me as a geek. I don't care, really, about the finances of the whole thing. What I want is more movies. I want movies with Batman in them. I want good movies with Batman in them. I want movies with Superman in them. I want movies with Batgirl. I want movies with all of the Batgirls. I want movies about Nightwing. I want movies about some obscure character I haven't even quite heard of yet. And all of this makes it less likely that I'm going to get that. And that's that's just a shame and a pity and annoying. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stop now. Uh, that was properly a rant. Was that the boring preachy part? I don't know. No, I don't think it was really, was it? I used gender neutral pronouns for somebody. Is that boring or preachy? I don't know. Anyway, it's about time we moved on, isn't it? Let's move on. And after all of that, let's move on to something a little bit positive. Shall we? It's time to talk about this week's wonderful woman of science. And this week, we have a biologist, the wonderful Nettie Stevens, a woman who I confess, until I started researching for this segment, I had never heard of. And she's hugely important in biology. OK, so Nettie Stevens, or if we're going to give her a Sunday school name, Nettie Maria Stevens, was born on July 7th, 1861, in Cavendish, Vermont. Now, we don't know that much about her early life because she was a woman who was born in 1861 in Vermont, and we don't know much about many women, or indeed many men, in detail from that time period. We just, people didn't write any of that stuff down, frankly. Uh, but we do know that she went to the state normal school, uh, now known as Westfield State College in Westfield, Massachusetts, uh, between 1881 and 1883. And in 1896, she entered Stanford University, taking a Bachelor of Arts in 1899 and a Master of Arts in 1900. Now, just think about those dates for a second. She must have worked ridiculously hard to earn those qualifications as a woman in the late 1800s in America or anywhere else. I suspect America may have been a little more enlightened than Britain at the time on this issue, but to pretend that she wouldn't have had to face entrenched misogyny would be naive at best. I mean, bear in mind, women couldn't attend Oxford or Cambridge universities at this point. So, you know, uh, she then began doctoral studies in biology, biology at um, the Bryn. Now, I've not heard this said out loud. M-A-W-R. I'm going to say that's the Bryn Mawr College, uh, which involved her taking a year to study uh, at a zoological station in Naples, in Italy, uh, and at the Zoological Institute at uh, the University of Würzburg in Germany. Now, she took that PhD in 1903, and she remained at the Bryn Mawr College as a research fellow for a year, uh, reading in experimental morphology for another year. And then from 1905 and for the rest of her life, uh, she served there as an associate in experimental morphology. Uh, and we'll have a little talk about what that is. Her earliest research 
was in the field of morphology and taxonomy um, of um, protozoa. Her first published paper, published in 1901, uh, had dealt with uh, protozoan, uh, and she turned to cytology and the regenerative process. Now, I'm not a biologist. I'm not going to be able to explain what all of that is. Uh, basically, she was looking into what makes creatures the creatures that they are. Why do they take the shapes they do? Why do they take the forms they do? How do we know what creatures are related to which other creatures? That's taxonomy. That's the naming of things. Uh, and yeah, this is an exciting time for this kind of work. We were only really beginning to understand biology properly in the early 1900s, which is perhaps why she was able to do so much groundbreaking stuff so early in her career. Uh, in uh, 1904, she published a paper with a, a guy called Thomas Hunt Morgan, who was a, a geneticist and a zoologist and who would go on to win the Nobel Prize for his work. Uh, and she started looking into regeneration, which led her to a study uh, of embryos and how embryos are different. And that led her to a study of chromosomes. Now, chromosomes were only discovered in 1900. And in 1905, just five years after chromosomes were discovered, she published a paper in which she revealed her discovery that a particular combination of the chromosomes known as X and Y were responsible for the determination of the biological sex of an individual. So women, females are XX, males are XY. And biologically, that's how sex is determined. This discovery ended a long-standing debate over whether sex was a matter of heredity or environmental in, in, influence at the uh, embryonic stage. Uh, and it was also the first real tangible solid link between a heritable characteristic, a heritable feature, and individual chromosomes. And Stevens continued to research this um, and look at the chromosomes of various insects, uh, discovering that some chromosomes were apparently supernumerary, they didn't, weren't really needed, and that there were pairs of chromosomes in mosquitoes and in flies. Uh, and then she started to look into cytology, which is the study of cells, as the fundamental building blocks of living things, if you like. Um, now, that had been going on as a study, uh, a field of study that had been going on since 1665. So it was fairly well understood or, or developed at that time. Um, and she did some fairly groundbreaking work in all of that. It's the work that she did to finally nail down how biological sex is determined. Not gender. That's a different kettle of fish that we're not getting into here. But how biological sex is determined was her major contribution to science and to have done it at such an early point in her career demonstrates a real commitment to stuff. Um, her career, unfortunately, was not terribly long. Um, she died quite young in her 50s uh, on May the 4th, 1912, which is far too young. She was 50 years old, which is, you know, 
an absolute crying shame. Just imagine if she'd worked into her 70s as many scientists do. What else might she have come up with? We'll never know. But I give you Nettie Stevens, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a wonderful woman of science without whom we would know significantly less about what makes our bodies the bodies they are. And very quickly, we're going to scoot right along to some comics recommendations. And we're going to start with a character who has been overlooked for a very, very long time. And we are talking decades here. Our first comics recommendation this week is The New Champion of Shazam, issue one, which features Mary Marvel, who I don't think has had a comic of her own for it must be at least 60 years. Uh, Mary Marvel, for those of you who are uninitiated, was part of the Captain Marvel family. Only when I say Captain Marvel here, uh, I don't mean the Marvel Captain Marvel, uh, who you may remember from like Avengers Endgame and the film Captain Marvel. I'm talking about Captain Marvel, who was the champion of the wizard Shazam, who you may remember from the movie Shazam, because that's what they call the character now. Because for reasons that are complicated and largely down to um, not taking the legalities of things terribly seriously, DC, who came to own Captain Marvel stroke Shazam, didn't trademark the name Captain Marvel. And when Marvel Comics realised that, they went, hmm, we're called Marvel Comics, and we can call a character Captain Marvel, and no one can stop us, let's do that. So they did, and the rest is history. And DC basically took that on the chin, and so they now call the character they used to call Captain Marvel, Shazam, which actually isn't his name, it's his magic word, but there you go. Mary Marvel was part of a family of characters who derived their powers from the magic of the wizard Shazam and she's been largely overlooked for a very long time and now she's been put front and centre. We're looking at her now as a young woman about to embark on a university career. She's lost her powers because reasons that happened in other comics but Shazam, Billy Batson is no longer able to function as the champion of Shazam for reasons I won't go into. Happened in a different comic. And he has sent out word that he needs Mary to step up and be the superhero the world needs because he can't do it anymore. Mary doesn't want him. She's done with that bit of her life. She's forging her way as a student far away from all the baggage of her past and just wanting to make a new life for herself with new friends and, you know, just be a regular student for a bit. But some things are difficult to resist. And so she finds herself taking on the mantle of the new champion of Shazam. And it's just brilliantly told. Mary's backstory is told relatively quickly but in a way that makes you understand why she's making the decisions that she's making. And the character is presented to us in a way that makes her instantly sympathetic. So we're, we're st bearing in mind that people don't really know that much about the character. We're starting this miniseries with a really good, solid foundation. There's a nice little action sequence which lets her show us 
what her powers are, which doesn't feel shoehorned in. It feels natural. And then the reveal at the end of issue one, which is setting us up for the next three issues and the thing that's going to motivate Mary to do the things that presumably she's going to do. Nicely done at the end. A little bit trite, perhaps, but it works. So that's the new champion of Shazam. It's out from DC Comics this week. And I really recommend it. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, written by Josie Campbell, whose work I've always admired. Uh, art by uh, Evan Shanna. Uh, letters by Becca Carey. It, it's just a really, really, really nice read. And then we have the return of some old friends. If you have been following for any length of time at all, you will have heard me rant at some time or another about the brilliance of the writer-artist Terry Moore, whose work I discovered in the early 90s when he was writing and drawing a strip called Strangers in Paradise, which began as the story of a friendship friendship between two women and became uh, a massive continent-spanning thriller of espionage and crime and love and friendship. At the core of the story of Strangers in Paradise was the relationship between Francine and Katina Jovansky. And what made their relationship particularly complicated was Katina Jovansky's past. Because Kachu, Katina Jovansky, had been a Parker girl. And the Parker girls were a, what could you describe them as? They were originally introduced as a sort of high-end escort agency, but they were much more than that. They were deeply entrenched in organised crime, and the Parker girls were not just escorts. They were trained in espionage and combat and infiltration, and their work as escorts got them access to powerful people who they would then manipulate and study and find stuff out about for the purposes of blackmail, for the purposes of um, finding secrets, were in effect a sort of independent intelligence agency. And they were also disbanded. And during the story of Strangers in Paradise, um, one of the deals to keep uh, Kachu out of jail was to give up the Parker girls and cut a deal with the FBI. Spoilers for a very nearly 30-year-old book. But of course, you can't unlearn things. And so there were lots of Parker girls out there with these skills. And so they kind of stayed together and stayed in touch. And they're now led by uh, a character called Tambi, who is very tough and just wants to make the world better. And they've got their own comic, Parker Girls, out this week from Abstract Studios, written and illustrated by Terry Moore. It is beautiful to look at and brilliantly written. What we get in the first issue alone is a whole Parker Girl assignment, uh, bringing someone to just a fraudster to justice. It's, it's really nicely done. And Terry Moore writes like an angel. I would read his shopping list if it wouldn't be creepy. He's that good. So check it out. Uh, it's black and white and all the better for it. 
So that's the Parker Girls out also this week. Now, you'll notice I haven't told you how much any of these comics are, and that's because they're both 350 at the moment. But Diamond Comics, who supply all the comics to the comic shops in the UK, are putting up their prices, and I am not sure what I'm going to do about that. I'm definitely holding them for standing order customers for now. I'm holding them for everybody else for now as well, but sooner or later, that's going to have to change. So um, if you have an interest in getting into comics, can I suggest that you start to think about ordering in advance? That's going to be cheaper going forward. And I suspect that's true, not just of me, but of most small independent comic shops, which you should support. If I am not the closest indie shop to you, shop with the one that is. Okay, support your local comic store and bookstore is what I'm saying. Keep off Amazon. That's for films only. Okay, we are running out of time. A quick shout out to the Geek Pub Quiz folks. They are the only people on the Geek Community Notice Board this week because they're the only people who have given me any dates for anything. But their newest format, the Geeky Kids Quiz at the Everman Cinema Harrogate, will be on Saturday, the 20th of August. I believe it starts at 2pm. This will be a family-themed quiz for ages 5 and up. Then, on Sunday, the 21st of August, it is the 10th anniversary of the Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom's Social. They'll be looking back to when the quiz first started in 2012, and it's going to be a great, great night. Third, and finally, they are back at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate on Thursday, the 25th of August, for the Disney Movie Quiz. Please feel free to share those events with your friends and your family and then go to them. I think it's £3 entry. You don't need to pay in cash. They have a little card reader now because it's 2022. And honestly, it is a great night. I can't recommend it highly enough. We are out of time. Back next week. Till then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe and above all else, stay geeky. You take care, folks.